Reflections on The Theology of the Body by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 1. Teilhard de Jardin said once in a letter, I think, to someone, he said, all I hope is that the ashes of my life will serve to nourish the soil from which a true saint will be born. So all of us uh, have, uh, have that calling, calling to sanctity, which I'll speak about in a minute, and the calling to nourish it in others. For the most part, I'm going to try to situate uh, the theology of the body culturally and historically, and then in terms of our, in, in terms of our faith. Then I will try to say something about the context in which the Pope's theology of the body emerges, the context being the Second Vatican Council and its stride forward in our understanding of faith. Then I'll say something about romance and the origin of romance in history and something about its perils and promises. And then about the crisis that has engulfed us, especially the crisis as it is manifested in the crisis of our sexuality, of marriage, of celibacy. One thing we should probably note is that the crisis of marriage is happening at the same time as the crisis of celibacy. And these are related crises. And a careful study of the Pope's theology of the body uh, will help us understand that. So uh, it's very superficial to say, uh, in respect to, for example, the crisis of celibacy, that the solution is marriage, because marriage is in its own crisis for the same reason. Very few people are suggesting that the solution to the crisis of marriage is celibacy, but there's a kind of parody of that that's taking place anyway, and that is a kind of barrenness in marriage, a barrenness that might be manifested in terms of reproduction, it might be manifested in terms of eroticism, it might be manifested in, in spiritual terms, but the barrenness that is overtaking marriage in our world is a kind of parody of celibacy. So first thing we should note is that the crisis of marriage and celibacy are the same crisis and rooted in the collapse of the same mystery, namely the nuptial mystery. And we will get into that, but I perhaps say that uh, as the beginning because I want to uh, call your attention to this marvelous photograph. But first, let me finish my little catalog of what we're going to do today. After we talk about the crisis, you'll be desperate to hear something from the Pope because I will only have said a few things about that and we'll be very late in the day by that time. But at that point, we can turn to the theology of the body and extract a few of its seminal insights and reflect on that. So most of the day will be spent looking at the historical, cultural, doctrinal situation in which the crisis that the Pope is addressing in the theology of body, the context in which that emerges. And then we will turn to the Pope's very powerful insights into this. This is the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. It occurred to me yesterday when Father Bob showed me this uh, photograph which has been manipulated in some way, I suppose. Looks, it looks something like an Impressionist image of John Paul uh, leaning on his crozier. This photograph is here to preside over our day uh, with a number of reminders. One of the things that it should serve to remind us of is that I will be addressing the, the crisis of our time very largely in terms that relate to let's say, people in their 20s and 30s. In other words, I'll be addressing the cultural crisis as it is rampant in terms of intimacy and sexuality and marriage and so on, and especially the impact that that is having on young people. These are all our issues, of course, and that's one of the things the Pope wants to bring out. Uh, but if it sounds like I'm talking about things that relate to these younger people, it's precisely because they are in the most peril. And I happen to have a 22-year-old son and a 20-year-old daughter, and I'm concerned about these things. Uh, so, but please know, all you have to do is look to this photograph in order to be reminded that the source of this wisdom is coming from this man. 
And this picture is a marvelous example of the theology of the body. What John Paul is doing in this picture is he is learning from the body. And what he is learning is a Christian mystery. The body has a Christian mystery to teach us. That is what the Pope is telling us in the theology of the body. The body has its own epistemology, its own prophecy. It is prophetic, and it has to teach us a great mystery. And the mystery it has to teach us is the Christian mystery. And sometimes it teaches us the mystery of life and the mystery of resurrection, as when the Pope used to ski and canoe. And sometimes it teaches us the mystery of the cross, as we see here in this photograph. But it's the same mystery. We Christians know that the mystery of the cross and the mystery of the resurrection are the same mystery. And the body has to teach us this mystery. So if it seems sometimes I'm talking about things that relate to young people, take a glance at that photograph and be reminded that it's a bigger mystery that's being explored here. Our topic is body language. Or to put it another way, the Word made flesh. Body language. What can we learn from the body language of the Word made flesh? Why are we here? We are here to become saints. Why else? Everything else would be wasting our time. We are here to become saints, to grow in sanctity. We are at some disadvantage in this regard because we are sinners. But despite that handicap, there's reason for hope. For Christ has made it so that our sinfulness is the raw material for our sanctity. So, however daunting this business of becoming a saint might be, we needn't worry that we will ever run out of raw material. We will always have more. Christ touches our sinfulness with mercy and grace and uses the result to build up his church. If this were not so, I could not possibly stand before you today because I am a product of sin and grace. The first time I read The Theology of the Body, I read it in order partly to understand and partly to atone for a marriage that had ended in divorce. I was not disappointed. I grew in both my understanding and in my contrition. By the grace of God, some years later, I'm married to a certifiable but as yet uncanonized Catholic saint. I went back to the theology of the body after my marriage and reread it in light of that great gift. And it came alive again for me in a different way. It allowed me to recognize and appreciate and be grateful for the great mystery that I had experienced for the first time of sacramental matrimony. So I, I am a product of sin and grace in that regard. I've seen the clouds from both sides now, as Judy Collins or whoever it was said. But it is the mystery of faith itself that has come alive in me as I have poured over the Pope's document uh, these many times now. Now, what I want to do at the, at the very beginning is to situate it very quickly and very briefly in terms uh, against the backdrop of Vatican II. This, uh, this is very much something that the Pope goes to great pains to do, that this uh, does not come out of nowhere. It comes out of a working out of Vatican II. Unfortunately, 
Uh, Vatican II, for the American church for many years, remained a kind of rumor. Uh, the rumor was that Vatican II was about liberalizing the church or something like that. And so the deeper meaning of Vatican II was, for the most part, lost on us, lost on most of us in the pew for a long time. But we have to eventually go back and come to grips with the deeper meaning of Vatican II. So in order to just say a few words about that, let me say that there would be two things one would want to say about Vatican II. It moves from an old form of religiosity, which I, for which I will use the word the sacred, now, don't get me wrong, this word can be used in very nice ways, and I'm all for it, but I'm using it here in a very technical sense. And the, a sacred in, a system in which there is a fair amount of superstition, a fair amount of rote ritual, a fair amount of religiosity that is not fully Christian, really, does not really engage the heart and the soul in the way that it should though there are wonderful things about it. I'm, I'm eternally grateful for the fact that I grew up in the pre-Vatican II church. So, as some of you did, I can tell. Uh, nevertheless, there were things, were there not, that had accumulated over the centuries. They needed to be cleared out, and they were cleared out. We moved, we should have moved, from this, the what I'm calling, in, in quotation marks if you'd like, the old sacred, which was not only uh, suffused with a certain amount of superstition and Old Testament religiosity, but also in some ways shot through with forms of power and violence even. So we move from that, ideally, from the sacred to the sacramental. As we left these things behind in Vatican II, as we left some of the accretions of the old sacred that had gathered around the church over the centuries. As we left those behind, Vatican II called us to a more intensified sacramentality, which was a call that for the most part we have neglected. We have not yet met that call. What happens when we move away from the old forms of sacrality is that we move into the secular, that our religious life becomes to some degree secularized. And this has certainly happened in our church to a degree. Uh, so there's a, there's a situation, historical situation, in terms of our understanding of our faith. We're in the midst of that. We're in the midst of that journey. From the sacred to the sacramental, and for the time being, we're a little bit awash in something that's a little too secular, or aspects of secularity. The other thing about Vatican II is that it began to insist that our faith must be grounded in anthropology. Anthropology meaning an understanding of how we humans are made and how we humans form relationships with one another, cultural relationships, intimate relationships, whatever, so that our understanding of our faith has to be grounded in anthropology because the great Catholic principle is grace perfects nature. So what is the nature of the human? You see, Vatican II wants to say, what is the nature of the human? In order to understand the mystery of, the, of Christian redemption, which is that it takes the natural human and touches that nature with grace and transforms it. So we have to begin. The great Catholic principle of grace-perfecting nature is simply based on the, uh, the understanding that faith is rooted in anthropology. And to give you a feel for that, I want to offer you a few quotes from Louis-Marie Chavot, who is a French Catholic theologian who writes on sacramentality. And these are sort of lapidary statements, you know, so they are a little bit dense, but at least they save a lot of time. Uh, so here's what Chavot says. The category of sacralization has been replaced by that of sanctification. And the category of the intermediary between God and humanity, which the Jewish priesthood was, has been replaced by that of mediation. The mediation, not the intermediary, but a mediator. And he goes on to say in another place, the sanctification of the profane, the ordinary, 
has been substituted for the Jewish category of the sacralization, which was based on the separation from the profane. In the sacred system, one must absolutely separate the sacred and the profane. They must never be allowed to touch. And when you're in the presence of the sacred, you're outside the presence of the profane. You have put the profane away, and vice versa. In the sacramental world, these two interpenetrate. You see, God is Emmanuel. God is with us. We are here together. Humanity and divinity in the incarnation is the supreme expression of that. So in the place of the sacralization, which is the separation of the profane and the sacred, we have the sanctification of the profane. And Javot says the place of the theological is therefore the anthropological. The most spiritual is the most bodily. Is this not what is attested in particular in the sacraments, he said, in quote. The sacraments insist on that. The sacraments take place with our bodies and with material expressions. So they're not esoteric. They are concrete. And then he quotes Marie-Dominique Chenu, another theologian, French theologian, who says the two words sacramental and anthropology cannot be dissociated. If we're to understand the mystery of our sacramental life of faith, we have to understand it against the backdrop of anthropology. Anthropology meaning how we humans are made. Our nature is such that it lends itself to being touched by grace and sanctified. So to understand this mystery of sanctification, you have to begin with understanding our nature. So that is implicit in the work of the Second Vatican Council. John Paul is writing out of the spirit of that council in which, of course, he took a very important role. Country Patmore, Catholic convert of the, at the end of the 19th century, a wonderful poet, uh, a man who, uh, in many ways, was a forerunner of John Paul's theology of the body because he celebrated so marvelously uh, the mystery of married love. Coventry Patmore said, quote, If we could find in God that full satisfaction of all our desires, which he promises, we must believe extravagantly. That is, as the church and the saints believe. And we must not be afraid to follow the doctrine of the Incarnation into all of its natural consequences. You see, the doctrine of the Incarnation is that God comes into our humanity in order to redeem it. And Patmore says we must be willing to follow that all the way. And John Paul has followed it all the way. And it's so marvelous to me, you know, because we live in a world where for decades now people have been celebrating the body and sexuality and free love and God knows what. And now you look around and it's like a war zone. You know, there's just corpses everywhere. And people are walking around with deep sunken eyes looking, you know, blankly as though they've just survived some catastrophe, which is true. So who's going to save the body in this situation? Guess who? 81-year-old celibate who's got Parkinson's. He can't even smile. You know, he probably drools by now. He walks out onto the world stage in order to speak a word about the great mystery of the body and the glory of the body. It's absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Patmore is his, one of his predecessors in this, in, insisting that we have to take that mystery of the Incarnation and follow it all the way. Commenting on this passage in Patmore, Sister Dame Felicitas Corrigan, who's a Benedictine sister, said, quote, This is precisely what the Council has done. It has rescued sublime truths from the theological abstraction of outmoded terms, 
and presented them in biblical language as the concrete and credible realities they are, everything in this is affirmative and positive. It's an affirmation of the mystery of humanity uh, and in the mystery of our bodiliness. Now, at the same time, it is the great mystery of Catholic doctrinal development, of course, is the truth that we never, never get to the bottom of. We never get to the bottom of it. Truths come up out of our faith all the time that are perfectly in keeping with what has gone before, but at the same time totally revolutionary, could not have been predicted. This is the most amazing thing. And it's already prefigured in the life of Christ. If you never had any exposure to the Bible and you read all the way through the Old Testament and you got to the end of the Old Testament and then you, somebody said, okay, what's going to come next? You couldn't guess. You couldn't have guessed it. You see, it was impossible. But then you get the next. Christ comes and he walks the earth and he heals and, and uh, touches people and, and forgives and is put to death and rises again and then, then you're at the end of the Bible. And you look at that and you say, it's perfectly obvious that's what had to happen. It makes total sense in terms of what went before. I couldn't have predicted it to save my life. Do you see what I mean? That's how Catholic doctrine developed. It comes up out of the great mystery of faith, and it's surprising. We say, my goodness. And then we notice that it's perfectly in keeping with what went before, that what went with before was, was preparation for this. And this will happen to us from now to the end of time. I said to the young people at the Newman Center uh, the other night, it's the greatest adventure in the world. There's just no end to it. And what John Paul has done with the theology body is a very vivid and exciting example of that. By the way, one of the reasons that I asked Pat to hand out these cards is not because I was trying to advertise my little institute, but because on the back of the card are three quotations, one from René Girard, one from Hunters von Balthasar, and one from uh, John Paul. Now, I was going to take time to share those with you from the podium, but I won't now because you have copies of them. But I am going to quote something that is from uh, Hansers von Balthasar, a great Catholic theologian, which is an echo of that second quotation on that little card you have, but one perhaps even more specific to the topic that we have today. He says, the Holy Spirit can bring up what seem to be new mysteries out of the depths of the revelation accomplished by Christ Mysteries which were indeed present in it, but hitherto not noticed or suspected or regarded as possible by anyone at all. You see, the Holy Spirit can do this, and it is always going to be doing this. And in many ways, Vatican II was an example of that, and clearly the theology of the body is an example of that. And von Balthasar goes on to say, in doing this, the Holy Spirit never fails to show the point at which the new things are linked to the old, the crater out of which they erupt, the letter which they interpret, the crater out of which they erupt. That's a marvelous image of uh, something that seems to have gone dormant, and now we almost start to talk of it as though it's a mountain, and suddenly, boom! There it is. That's Christian faith. My institute is called the Cornerstone Forum. It was once called the Florilegia Institute, and we changed the name for a number of reasons, largest of which is that nobody knew what the word meant, nobody, no one knew how to say it, no one knew how to spell it. So we finally changed it. What a Florilegium is is a collection of texts. And I named the Institute that many years ago because basically what I do is I, I'm not interested at all in being original. As a matter of fact, I'm somewhat terrified by that prospect. What I would like to do is to bring together this cloud of witnesses and to assemble them, orchestrate them in some way, and present them as a symphony. 
not of what I think, because who cares what I think, but of what our faith tells us and what our church is saying. You see what I mean? If it just looks like I'm just throwing one quote at you after another, you probably say, well, that's easy. It's not easy. <laughs> I had to find these quotes and put them in the right order. So it's not that easy. So this next one is from uh, Paul Evdokimov. Evdokimov is an Orthodox theologian. He's a wonderful thinker, especially in this area of the mystery of nuptiality. And he says this, echoing what von Balthasar says about the development of doctrine in Catholic theology. Evdokimov says, the seeds deposited in the Bible flower only after many centuries. A completely new spirituality is asserting itself today, one that is searching for neither more nor less than a priestly vocation in conjugal love, the nuptial priesthood, end quote. Now, he wrote that in the, I think, early 70s. He's anticipating what the Pope is working out in his theology of the body. And that's what we'll talk about today. No Pope in history has been more interested in the theological significance and anthropological meaning of married love than John Paul II. One wonders why. John Paul says in The Theology of the Body, quote, the theology of the body is indispensable for an adequate understanding of the pronouncements of the magisterium of the modern church. In other words, we can't understand what the magisterium of the modern church, meaning Vatican II and thereafter, is saying unless we understand the theology of the body. That's an incredibly sweeping statement. He says elsewhere, the sacramentality of the church remains in a particular relationship with marriage, the most ancient sacrament. Marriage as the Pope sees it, is the first sacrament. It's the sacrament of harmonization itself. Marriage and harmonization, harmonization means becoming human. When the, our pre-human ancestors crossed the threshold and became humans, we have to ask about that threshold and think about it in terms of what the Pope has done. I'm going to read some poems to you today, and some of them will be edifying and some of them will not be. But they're all, I think, worth reflecting on. And the first one is a poem that I used in my book called Violence Unveiled, and I used it there to a slightly different purpose, but it is so apropos of what we're going to talk about today, I wanted to return to that. Because it speaks of digging down into something that hasn't been looked at and discovering something. And I think that's what John Paul has done with the theology of the body. And it's a poem by Richard Wilbur, who's a marvelous poet. It's called A Hole in the Floor. I won't read the whole poem, but a few stanzas. It goes like this. The carpenters made a hole in the parlor floor, and I'm standing staring down into it now. At four o'clock in the evening, as Schleimann stood when his shovel knocked the crowns of Troy. Schleimann was an amateur archaeologist who discovered Troy. The carpenters made a hole in the parlor floor. Well, one wonders what carpenter that could refer to. Well, let's make the poem our own, and let's see that carpenter as the son of the carpenter. The son of the carpenter has made a hole in the parlor floor, and we're staring down into it now. Clean-cut sawdust sparkles on the gray, shaggy lathes, and there is a cluster of shavings from the time when the floor was laid. So we're looking under the floor. Kneeling, the poet says, kneeling I look in under where the joists go into hiding. For God's sake, what am I after? Some treasure or tiny garden or that untrodden place, the house's very soul? 
where time has stored our footbeats and the long skein of our voices. Not these, but the buried strangeness which nourishes the known. That spring from which the floor lamp drinks now a wilder bloom, inflaming the damask love seat and the whole dangerous room. At the literal level, he's talking about electricity coming up into that floor lamp, you see? But what does he say about that? This floor lamp drinks now a wilder bloom, inflaming the damask love seat and the whole dangerous room. The leitmotif today in part will be the damask love seat and the dangerous room. It's interesting to me, and I'm making the poem my own here. I'm not attributing this to Richard Wilbur, but I've read enough Richard Wilbur to know that it could very easily be attributed to him because he's that kind of a poet. The word damask, the material that's referred to as damask, gets its name from Damascus because that was where it was originally made. And Damascus, of course, for anyone who has any biblical resonance at all, conjures up something about conversion, does it not? It was on the road to Damascus that Paul was traveling when he had his conversion. And, but here we have not the road to Damascus, but the Damas- the Damask love seat. We have some other reference, if you don't mind me taking liberties with this poem, we have another reference to conversion, but a quite different kind of conversion. A conversion that happens in the damask love seat. But it's also a perilous conversion. It's a conversion that happens in the dangerous room. You see, something is being discovered here which is very powerful, full of promise, and full of peril. It could go either way. Now, as for the dangerous room, a week ago yesterday was Valentine's Day. Last year, Valentine, 2002, there was a story in the Associated Press from India, which I thought was interesting and uh, symbolically significant, and I will read the first paragraph of that story to you. The nationalist Chief Senate Party a part of the coalition government that has repeatedly called for a ban on Valentine's Day celebration, made its presence felt in demonstrations around the country. In New Delhi, gangs accosted hand-holding couples, burned Valentine's Day cards, and blocked access to gift shops and restaurants, trying to keep anyone from celebrating what they called an invasive Western tradition. In Bombay, the police said they arrested about 600 people to prevent a repetition of the vandalism that occurred the year earlier. Activists still stood menacingly outside card shops and in some areas burned cards in bonfires. About 100 miles west of Bombay, similar instances occurred involving nearly three dozen Shiv Sena volunteers, according to police officials. Gangs accosted hand-holding couples. This has happened not only in India, but in Islamic countries for the same reason. For the same reason. The reason being there is a tradition of being very wary of expressions of amorousness. It's a very long tradition. It's rooted in something real. But today that tradition is made vivid for people in India and in many Islamic countries because they see this expression of amorousness and eroticism coming into their world from the West, and they don't like what's happened in the West. You see? And they have some reasons for not wanting the disease to spread to their societies. Of course, it already has. I say disease. I shouldn't say that. I don't want to put it in negative terms at all. An old friend of mine, who's long since gone to his reward. He was a teacher, and he said to me one day, and we were in the presence of a lot of craziness, and he said to me, 
young people have lost the mystery of holding hands. Young people have lost the mystery of holding hands. And isn't it so? Well, the mystery of holding hands is a Christian mystery. That's what the Pope is telling us. The mystery of holding hands is a Christian mystery. The crisis of sexuality is a Christian crisis. It is rooted in confusions that have their origin in the anthropological revolution that Christianity has set in motion. Now, I'm all in favor of the mystery of holding hands. As a matter of fact, if I look out and I see a young couple walking down the street, and let's imagine, you know, he's got a purple mohawk, and she's got a shaved head and pierced, you know, everything, and tattoos, the whole deal, and they're holding hands. If they're holding hands, I don't worry. If they're holding hands, I think that's okay. You see what I mean? I feel good about it. Because that's a Christian mystery. Now, how about the people in Bombay? How about the people in Islamic countries? They don't want to have anything to do with it. There are reasons for that. It's a dangerous room in which this damask love seat is found. Now, what I want to do now is go back and think about the origin of this mystery, which is now distinctively Western, the mystery of holding hands. If you go to these non-Western worlds, to the extent that you can even say that anymore, the West has now so penetrated the world all over that there's hardly any place that is strictly non-Western anymore. Nevertheless, if you go to reasonably non-Western places, to the extent that cultural venue can be regarded as non-Western, you will find that they have a distinctively different understanding of eroticism and the mystery of holding hands and all the things that we think of as being just part of our life. It's culturally situated. It has cultural specificity. And what I want to talk about for the next few minutes is that. Let me just say a few things, and again, as part of the florilegium of quotations I'm going to share with you, to get a picture, a kind of montage of this thing that we take for granted, that we think is universal, it's always been, but there's something that's historically specific and culturally specific about it. It comes out of that culture which was most powerfully affected by Christianity for the longest period of time. So let me just read a few things to you. Uh, Henry Osborne Taylor has done a classic two-volume study of the a medieval mind, and he says this, quote, Antiquity had known the passion which overwhelmed the stricken mortal and had treated it as something put upon the man and the woman, a convulsive joy, but also a bane. Antiquity had analyzed it as well and had shown its effects, especially its physical symptoms. Much had been written of its fatal nature. Songs had been sung about how it overthrew the strong and brought men and women to their death. Looking upon this love as something put on man and woman, antiquity pictured it mainly as an insanity cast like a spell upon someone who would otherwise have been sane. But the Middle Ages saw love transformed into the man and woman, saw it constitute their will as well as their passion, and perceived that it was their very being. If the lover could not avoid or resist it, the reason was because it was his mightiest self, and not because it was a compulsion from without. It was his nature, not his disease. Whereas the ancient world would have regarded it as a passing disease, an intoxication from which one must be sobered as quickly as possible to avoid all the terrible consequences. And suddenly in the Middle Ages in the West, another understanding of it emerged. Now, a little footnote here in parentheses about how this came to be in the West. It's a long and complicated story, 
And there are those, Denis de Rougemont among them, who analyze it from a very negative point of view. And they talk about its origins, this, some of the heretical origins of this and so on. And it would take us too far afield for me to even get into that, so I will not get into that. But the point is not so much what the various streams that fed into this notion of romantic love that emerged so powerfully with the troubadours in the south of France in the 11th and 12th century. We're not so much interested in these streams, these little rivulets that fed into it, but we're interested in this much bigger anthropological revolution that was rooted fundamentally in a gospel understanding and specifically in the Incarnation that divinity and humanity are united in some way. Colin Morris, who's written a book on the emergence of the idea of the individual in the 10th century, says this, quote, It is conceivable that the troubadours received some of their most characteristic attributes from the predecessors that are unknown to us. If we had more of this early vernacular verse, we might be less surprised by the apparently revolutionary appearance of romantic love in the 12th century, it seemed to kind of have come from nowhere. But it did have these little things that fed into it. But suddenly it erupted. It is certainly interesting to discover that whereas we know of almost no love poetry in Latin during the Carlaginian Renaissance, one such poem, uncertain in its meter and exact meaning, but moving in its delicacy and exciting in its promise for the future, shows a combination of Ovid and the Song of Songs. Now, Ovid was a pagan poet who had a good laugh about the silliness that happens to people when they fall in love. So he's out of that classical tradition which regarded it as a kind of momentary intoxication, a trick that nature plays on you in order to produce the next generation. You see what I mean? That's, that's Ovid and that's the, the sort of classic understanding, oh well, you know, you just go crazy a little bit and then you copulate, produce some offspring, and then you come to your senses. <laughs> so there's Ovid. But then there's the Song of Songs. You see? The Song of Solomon. This marvelous hymn to the mystery of erotic love, which is such a powerful part of the Old Testament. And what Morris is saying is that there comes this poetry that looks like it's a combination of the two, like we have a little in-between state here where something is being left behind and something is being discovered. So he says it was a combination of the Ovid and the Song of Songs and an overlap between the profane and sacred love. An overlap. They were supposed to keep be kept apart, profane and sacred things, and suddenly there's some kind of overlap here. And Ovid is being transformed into the Song of Songs. Indeed, Morris says, this very poem was used as a hymn in church with only minor changes. So it's a tremendous transformation that happens in this period, going from Ovid to the Song of Songs. It's a huge leap. He writes in the 12th century, quote, We are in the presence of a huge change in the ideals of society, a change which made personal devotion the essential feature of a true man-woman relationship. It's a radical change. We are in the presence, he says, of a new cultural pattern with great significance for the future. We now live in a world where that is, turn on the television, go to a movie. What's it about? In one way or another, it's about that or the collapse of that. This is the world we live in. This is a powerful, powerful thing that's happening in our world. And the truth is that our Christian faith, Christian doctrine has never adequately come to grips with it. We simply have ignored it. I mean, we say, oh, well, we've got a sacrament for that, and it's very powerful, it's entertaining, and, uh, you know, everybody's caught up in it, but it hasn't been dealt with. John Paul has begun to deal with it. And once we begin to deal with it, it will be the most important thing. In many ways, I feel, this is almost heresy to say, in many ways, I feel that the theology of the body is more important than Vatican II in terms of the future of our church. Morris also points out that a number of the best troubadours became monks. And I throw that in at this point because it's important to realize that the whole mystery of eroticism or nuptiality 
is not a question of just working out sexual relationships between men and women. It's a great mystery. And the fact that these troubadours became monks is a telling one. It's the same thing as saying this poem, which was a little bit of Ovid and a little bit of Song of Songs, became a hymn. A few minor changes, and it's a hymn that works in church, you see. We're very close to the Christian mystery here. In many ways, you could say the Pope's theology of the body is simply an attempt to explain how it is that the troubadours would become monks to account for that mysterious transformation, you see. That it was not this huge gap that it seems like, but it was just the natural consequence of a working out of a mystery that the troubadours had gotten onto. C.S. Lewis, before he had his Christian conversion, wrote this. It seems or seemed to us until lately a natural thing that love under certain circumstances should be regarded as a noble and ennobling passion. It is only if we imagine ourselves trying to explain this doctrine to Aristotle, Virgil, St. Paul, or the author of Beowulf that we become aware of how far from natural it is. French poets in the 11th century discovered or invented or were the first to express that romantic species of passion which English poets were still writing about in the 19th century. They affected a change which has left no corner of our ethics, our imagination, or our daily life untouched. And they erected impassable barriers between ourselves and the classical past or the oriental present. Compared with this revolution, the Renaissance is a mere ripple on the surface of literature. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing. Compared to this revolution, the Renaissance is a mere ripple on the surface of literature. Quoting Lewis again, the new thing itself I do not pretend to explain. Real changes in human sentiment are very rare. There are perhaps three or four on record, but I believe that they occur and that this is one of them. Okay. Again, as he says, we take it for granted. We think this is the way the world is. It's always been that way. It's not. It came. It emerged in the Christian West. Charles Williams says, There entered into the relations between the sexes a philosophical, even a religious idea. The idea had a very long life before it, and it was to undergo many unfortunate and fortunate changes. On the one hand, like many other religious ideas, it was to become a superstition. On the other hand, it was to be, naturally and regrettably, cold-shouldered by the ecclesiastical authority. It was to be an indulgence to the populace and a stumbling block to the Puritan. It was to save and to endanger souls the damask love seats in the dangerous room. You see, damask in the sense of conversion and dangerous in the sense that it could both save and ruin souls. And Charles Williams says, it is still quite uncertain what will happen to it. It may utterly disappear from the earth, but if not, the popular idea of it will probably have to undergo a good deal of purification. In fact, and in itself, it is a thing not of superstition and indulgence, but of doctrine and duty. Not of achievement, but of promise. It's a thing of doctrine and duty. Now, the popular idea will have to undergo a good deal of purification, and I think to some extent, that's what John Paul is providing for us. This mystery of falling in love, this passion of love that is so celebrated in popular lore and other ways, to put it in John Paul's terms, if its sacramental dimension is missed, you could even say if its Christological meaning is attenuated or set aside, it will lead to what it's led to but it can lead to our sanctification. It can be the most powerful incentive to our sanctification. So it's that kind of risky gamble. When you see people, not maybe not walking down the street holding hands, but uh, you see people 
who are engaged in a conversation, you can tell that this this wonderful mystery of the masculine and feminine is sort of enriching this friendship and touching them somewhere. You realize that something deep is being touched there. And the church provides a sacramental context for the nurturing of that mystery. And to the extent that nature is not being perfected by grace, it will define itself, interpret itself, as a merely natural phenomenon. And if it's merely natural phenomenon, then it's just an itch that you should scratch. You see what I mean? <laughs> but, but, but if it's something bigger than that, then it has to be nurtured. The troubadours were poets who were simply singing about this mystery. And for the troubadours, the beloved was always over there someplace and beyond, you know, outside of the reach. All one could do is just pine for her. You see what I mean? So there's now that's not to say that there weren't troubadours that were philanderers. But but the point is, and this is the point that Dante makes so powerfully, is if you take the, the seven deadly sins, lust is the easiest one to cure, the one that's closest, the most available to a Christian transformation. You see what I mean? And it's simply a form of nature that can be touched by grace and transformed. And when you think of monks, I think we have to be, those of us who are non-monks, we have to realize, uh, I have, as some of you do too probably, I have a number of monk friends, and they're not the Hollywood stereotype. The sense of relationality. You say, first of all, the relationship between to Christ and to the church, to be in love with the church, you say to be married to the church or to be married to Christ through the church, this is a, a nuptial experience. And it has all the ingredients that a relationship between a man and a woman can have. I mean, we're, after all, we're being taught about this mystery of masculinity and femininity by the world's most famous celibate. How does he know? I want to say some more things about the dangerous room and to tell you some very unedifying things. You don't need me to tell you this. All you have to do is read the paper and watch the blockbuster movies or turn on primetime television to notice it, but I'm going to call your attention to it in a particularly painful way. But maybe I should wait until you are fortified with another cup of coffee to do that.